Good morning. Uh, extra credit points to all of you who are here in the building. For those of you who are watching from a distance this morning, it's, I don't know, it's 31 below windshield when I woke up this morning. That's why I'm, that's why I'm saying what I'm saying. It took a little extra effort to make it here. Um, and before I uh, talk about what I'm going to talk about today, for those of you who just got through doing uh, 40 minutes of Zazen, that might be those of you at home, um, but it certainly applies to most of us in the room. I'm just curious how you did. This is a rhetorical question. You do not need to answer out loud. How'd you do? The reason I'm asking that question is because it allows us to sort of see what comes up in us as a metric for success or failure. It might give us a little insight into how we evaluate, how we judge, how we rank, what we do on the cushion. Not to judge it, but just to see it. It's pretty typical for human beings to evaluate either the experience that they're having currently or the experience they just had. And so if you find yourself saying, oh, yeah, that was a good sitting, good. But how come? Like, why was that your review? Just to sort of see. How you do that? Does that make sense? Or if you said, "Oh, that was a, ah, it's a terrible city." Oh, okay. I'll come. My thoughts started off really quiet, and they got busy. Oh, that was your metric. Thought frequency. Okay. I felt sad at the beginning, but I felt peaceful at the end. Oh. The presence of more pleasurable feelings was your metric. Or maybe it started off feeling pretty good, and then by the end you were sad. Oh, so maybe that's a bad sitting. Or maybe it's a good sitting because you didn't know you were sad. But by the end, it showed up. It trusted you enough as a witness that it showed itself, and you got a chance to know that. I don't know. Maybe your body felt tense at the beginning and felt relaxed at the end. Maybe vice versa. Maybe at the beginning you were thinking about the football game coming up here in a couple hours. And maybe by the end you were thinking about the Dharma. Oh, that was a good city. My thoughts were much loftier. <laughs> so this is just a hypothetical, but it's a cool thing to ask yourself. It's a very cool thing to ask yourself. At the end of my sitting, I evaluate it. Whether I know it or not, I evaluate that sitting. On a scale of one to 10, that was like a six and a half. Okay, cool. I'm not bringing that to your awareness to try to get you to stop doing that. But I do think it's interesting that we do that as humans. And I do think part of the invitation of what happens in this room is to come to know why we do that thing. And if there are 50 people in this room 
there are 50 different ways of evaluating what just happened. And your good is going to be my mediocre, is going to be her awesome, is going to be his crappy. Because we're all using different things. And so it's just good to see it. Like, oh, that ego function shows up and it does that. And the reason it's good to see it from a Zen point of view is because subconsciously, that's steering the entire time. That's the only reason you want to see it. Not because it's bad that ego functioning is present. Of course it's present. But unconsciously, it's steering the whole time. And so if I'm aware of that, if you are aware of that, then you go, oh, I see what's happening. I noticed how I steered myself away from that type of thinking or that emotion body, or I noticed how I, do you see what I'm saying here? And even like, oh, that was a good sitting, unconsciously, the next time we go back to the cushions, like, oh, we get that back again. Maybe I'll do that same thing again. Again, no, no problem. We're not pointing out a pathology here. We're just really wanting to notice. This is how... Is how humans evaluate their experience. And I don't know about you guys, but when I sit down, a human shows up every time <laughs> to meet me. And part of my job as Buddha nature is just to get to know that. Like, oh, look at him, there he's showing up. Look at all the words that are used to describe that experience. And look at the limitations of all those words and all those labels. Oh, I see what's happening here. Oh, yeah. And then the awareness starts to move down into the heart. You start going, every one of those little twists and turns is going to be in some way in relation to suffering. Oh, that's what's going on. Right? Something you've been hurt by in the past, you're going to try to subtly move away from. Something that worked in the past, try to subtly move toward. Yeah. I understand why he does that. Oh, <laughs> yeah, of course. But as the, as the great witness, you then get to make the decision from much more awareness. Is that a metric you still want to use? Do you still want to judge the sitting at the end and go, it was good because I feel emotionally more content at the end? Perhaps you do. Perhaps not. It was bad because I had thoughts. Do I still want to use that metric? Maybe I do. But that's why I'm asking. So if you just got through sitting for 40 minutes, you get to ask yourself, how did I do? And it's not about the answer. It's about what did I just use to arrive? And now I can see it because it was steering me. And now it's not steering you. Now you're the one who notices it. Isn't that cool? Okay. So what are we talking about today? We are talking about, uh, for those of you who have the program, in front of you, uh, the quote that I'm going to talk about today is from Zen Mind Beginner's Mind. Waves are the practice of the water. Waves are the practice of the water. This is something I've talked about before. This line fascinates me. Um, and so I'm just going to riff a little bit on that today and see what shows up for me and share with you. And you can see what shows up for you. So we'll play in the sandbox today. So um, where I want to start is um, talking just a little bit about um, kind of how practice, 
how meditation practice tends to start and where it tends to go for most of us, just as general patterns. So this is broad brush stuff. I'm doing that because um, we have a lot of folks um, attending online today, and there's a lot of folks in the room uh, who are newer to practice. There's a lot of us who have been doing this for a while too, but it's kind of helpful to pull back all the way and sort of say, let's start at the very beginning with some of our um, preconceived notions about practice, and then we'll move into something a little bit deeper. But um, at the beginning of practice, for most of us, uh, meditation practice or Zen practice in particular, um, we tend to associate not only the practice of sitting, um, zazen or meditation, uh, with places like this, but we tend to come to places like this in order to do it. It's cool. That's why MZMC exists. Right? All of us know you can meditate just fine on your own, so it's kind of like, why would you have a special building that costs a fortune, especially on days like today, right? <clears throat> in order to drive across town, to stare at a different wall than the wall I have at home. <laughs> sort of stupid, right? This is not a magic wall. These are not magic walls. This floor is just as boring as mine. And yet we come across town and we do go to a place that has been decorated, that has an aesthetic, it's been cared for in a certain way. It has symbolic objects in it. I'm sitting right in the way of some of them. Um... It has been curated with great intention, this space, to lend itself as easily as possible for all of us to facilitate the thing we call zazen, right, to help. So I'm going to go to a place that's still. Wouldn't that be nice? And a place that's clean, and a place that's calm, and a place that has an aesthetic that's right, gentle and helps me. Where there's a candle lit and there's fresh flowers on the altar. And the people in that space understand kind of how this place works. And so we're going to be quiet and gentle and aware with each other. It feels good. Right? It feels really, really good. It helps. Right? So at the beginning of practice, we tend to come to places like this. And we learn how to take the special posture. We go to the special place. We learn how to take the special posture. We set the timer or we assign somebody to be the timer. We have our candles lit and our incense lit and we rest in an undisturbed place. It's almost like we're watching ourselves from without. Like we're seeing our inner world from the perspective of that silent room and the still candle flame. Only by stilling the body and the environment around the body can we begin to see how much movement there really is within us and how that movement doesn't stop. Does that sound kind of fair? Mostly fair for most of us? Part of the wisdom of sitting still is so you can see the movement, right? Like if you keep your body still, it's easier to see oh, the parts inside me that are blah, 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 right? That's the sound effect it makes, according to the Sanskrit scriptures. <laughs> <laughs> we sit still so we can see the movement. It's just easier to do then, right? 
And it does seem like when we do it in a space like this, that's been curated, as I say, for us, it feels a little safer to notice that. It's a little easier to keep your body steady. And it feels like I'm in the space that allows me to see this and allows what I am seeing to be held with some safety. I'm not the only one doing it, right? So community is part of that. The aesthetic is part of that. The imagery is part of that. The symbols are part of that. We start to see the restlessness of the body. We start to see the waves of emotion. We start to see the chatter and storms of thought, what our teachers call the waves of mind. Right? So all of us who did just do 40 minutes of Zazen, whether you decided that was an awesome sitting or a craptastic sitting, all of us for sure noticed the waves of the body, the waves of the emotion, and the waves of thinking. All of us noticed that. Oh, there's some restlessness. Oh, my left foot fell asleep. Oh, I'm still kind of anxious about such and such. Right? Oh, I notice I'm thinking about the test. You notice all those things. <clears throat> cool, right? The waves of the mind. Waves are part of water nature, an expression of water nature. Which is, of course, what Suzuki Roshi is saying with his beautiful line, waves are the practice of the water. Waves and water have been used as a metaphor for mind for a very, very, very long time. Right? Clouds in the sky, waves in the water, these are the metaphors that we usually get in our traditional scripture to help understand. Right? Um, they're used as metaphors for life and death. They're used as metaphors for mental activity. They're used as metaphors for form and emptiness. They're used as metaphors for all sorts of things. But the reason waves are the practice of the water was such an important line for me when I first, actually, actually it didn't strike me when I first read it. I probably read it 20 times before it started mattering to me when I was ready was because it took away the problem, just immediately eliminated the problem. Because one of my metrics for Zazen for a long, long time, and this still sometimes creeps up on me, is the more waves I see, the worse I did. Right? As if somehow still water was more water than wavy <laughs> water. <laughs> and so when you say it that way, you see the absurdity of that. Like, that doesn't make any sense at all. No, it doesn't. But I've been using that as a stick to hit myself with for 30 years. Holy cow. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, it's really cool to see that. Because when you see it, then you're not it. And then you get to make a choice about whether or not you want to continue that. And if you really want, you can start digging down to some of the layers of suffering underneath that belief and go, why? What is that about? That obviously comes from suffering, or else I wouldn't have turned it into a stick. Why? That's a really good question. Why did I stickify that? And also, what's my incentive to continue to hurt myself? I keep doing it. We all laughed when I said I've been doing it for 30 years. As well, we should because it's absurd. But I was also telling you the truth. And every time, ouch, it hurt. So literally, as homo sapiens sitting in front of you today, what is my incentive to hurt myself ever so subtly with a judgment every day for 30 years? Why? That becomes a pretty good question. To me, that sounds like a very Buddhist question. You know you're creating dukkha, and yet you still do it. What's going on there? Right? 
So waves are the practice of the water. It's just such a brilliant, obvious sentence. You're like, yes, I know that. Even a three-year-old knows that's what water does. But just by stating it that way, he's immediately helping us to see, yes, but do you see how you judge? Which is what it should be. That's why it took me so long to see it. <laughs> Waves are an expression of water nature. They're not a pathology. It's just water fully being water, just like still water is water fully being water. This is why my whole metric for sitting question came up when I was working on this topic. When I look out at Bidet Makaska this morning, that's the big lake near us here. It's frozen. It's frozen because it's a thousand degrees below zero out there, right? Um, it's frozen. And so is that more Bidet Makaska than it was six months ago when it was thawed? Is it more Bidet Makaska when it's all covered in white caps because the wind coming across from the west is really, really strong? Is it more Bidet Makaska when it's one of those magic mornings where there's no wind at all and you can see reflection in it like it's a mirror? It's a silly question. We all know the answer. It's equally, equally, equally. There's no judgment there. It's just water, right? But what we're adding to that, so at the end of my zazen, when I notice and I start to judge the contents of my zazen, the physical content of my restlessness or my emotional reactivity, or the fact it started sad and ended up happy or started happy and ended up sad or started still and ended up busy or the stories went from happy to sad or the stories went from about present moment worry to past moment worry or the story started going from dharma worries to the football game worries, whatever. All those are just right spots of water that are cold or hot or moving or still or frozen or thawed. I can just imagine sitting down opposite Suzuki Roshi and going like, oh, the waves won't stop. The waves won't stop. Like, I'm telling you my pathology. Help me. Give me that magic thing so that I don't have to do that anymore. Won't that be nice? And then having him say, waves are the practice of the water. And being like, oh, that teaching offers me great relief. I don't have to be in an adversarial relationship with my experience. Why would I need to be in an adversarial relationship with my experience? So this is the beginning of our practice. And I don't know what the beginning means. First 10 years, maybe? First 20 years? I don't know. If that's discouraging for you, forget I just said it. <laughs> Two weeks? The first three weeks before everything gets super spotty? Yeah. <laughs> Come back in a month and say, you lied. Yes. Yes, I did. But I did become a member. Um, we start to see this for the first time, right? And I know everybody has had this experience. I have come to understand this is a universal meditation experience. Before I have ever sat down, I don't know. And then I sit down for the very first time. And even if that sitting was 10 minutes, for the very first time, I started going, holy macaroni, this thing doesn't stop. And it's my first time seeing that, right? Which is a really cool moment. And hopefully, hopefully, I have someone with me in that space who can tell me that's normal that's what you're supposed to see that's the deal instead of oh good you've just become aware of this horrible disease that's lived inside of you for all of these years and now you get to eradicate it Grr, i'm gonna cut off the mind road Ooh, that's gonna take a sharp sword anyway <laughs> right it's the first thing we all see is oh woo, woo, woo. and with my body is still and the space in which i am sitting is still at helps facilitate me seeing that. And hopefully it helps facilitate me seeing it in a friendly way, right? 
But the other thing that's also happening for all of us, I hope from the very beginning, is we are told, please do the seeing that you do on the cushion without judgment. Please just notice. Whether your first sitting was in the um, Vipassana tradition, the Zen tradition, the Mayana tradition, the Theravada tradition, uh, Christian contemplative prayer, centering prayer, I don't know. Probably the word mindfulness came up at some point because that's the word that we use. And in our scriptural inheritance, mindfulness is described as non-egoic awareness, awareness that isn't filtered through the ego, awareness that doesn't contain divisions or judgment. All the things I asked you about, hey, how did your sitting go? Wouldn't show up in a mindful state. You'd be aware of those judgments, but you'd be aware from a place of non-judgment. Does that make sense? I just made it sound super complicated. It's not, you know. But the reason that quality is so important is because we begin to recognize, oh, wow, I sat down for the very first time in my life. I just did 10 minutes of meditation this morning. I went to this weird place. I sat still and it was really weird. And I just noticed, oh, the carnival never stops. Wow. And if that, if that practice for even a few breaths took place with a mindful observer of all of the activity that you saw, you learned some incredibly important things that you probably don't know that you learned. They might have, they might take you a year or two or 10 or 20 to start seeing in that moment, I realized I'm not the contents of my consciousness. And I knew that because I could observe them. And that's a profound truth. And Zen says it a lot in a whole bunch of different ways. You can observe that thing, you're not that thing. Duh. I mean, it is a duh. But it's, you know, we don't see it as a duh until we see it. You can observe the thing, you're not the thing. My mind is so busy. Really? You just observed it. So what were you observing? And who was the observer? This is very Zen. You can feel it, right? This is like super Zen questions. Wait. If I'm not dead, then what am I? Uh-huh. No, but I can observe the body, and I can observe the emotions, and I can observe the thinking, and I can observe the karma. Uh-huh. Keep going. 40 more years. That's the right question, though. Keep going, keep going, keep going. You know? We're taught to see our patterning with mindfulness and the beauty of that and the profundity of that. Um, is that I am, for those few breaths, seeing my patterning from outside. And despite my glibness, I really am beginning very slowly to disidentify with the patterning as me. It's not me. I'm looking at it. Of course, it's part of my experience. I'm not disowning it. I'm just recognizing the fact that I can be the one who takes care of it. Not me. It's like when you stub your toe and it really hurts, you take care of it. You're not your toe. You can care for it, though. It's part of your experience. But you wouldn't say you're defined by it, right? If you had to amputate that toe for some reason, you wouldn't think this is the end of my life. You'd be more worried about like what kind of ice cream they're going to give you in recovery. Don't you think? If you had something amputated, wouldn't they give you ice cream? <laughs> I just assume you get ice cream if they take away anything like tea, you know, or appendix. I don't know. I'm hungry. So <laughs> at the end of talk, they should give whoever gave the talk ice cream. Right. Anyway. Mind waves. So without any agenda, without any plan, without any pushing, we're observing, we're observing, we're observing, we're practicing identifying ourselves with the mindful observer. And so what's happening is this beautiful thing during a period of zazen, where I'm the wave, and then I remember I'm the water, and then I'm the wave, and then I remember I'm the water, and then I'm the wave, and I remember I'm the water. 
Does it feel right? I'm the cloud, and then I remember I'm the sky. I'm the storm, and then I remember I'm the sky. Oh, yeah, yeah, and I'm both. Because it's my nature. It's my human nature to have waves and to have weather. And then I remember my Buddha nature. That's the word we use in Zen for the expansive part of ourselves that is not limited to the ego. Soul, we might say in other language. Just the, the vast part of you that hasn't been conditioned. Does that make sense? Isn't conditioned by, you know, karma. It's just there. The thing before the thing. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's what's happening. That's what's happening. So the first thing we start noticing is our judgment, because that's the nature of egoic consciousness. It's the nature of the waves. That's the nature of the storm. That's the thing that you saw when I asked you the question, how is your sitting? Um, and so the goal at the beginning, I wish this had been given to me a little more expressly or a little more um, obviously, was at the beginning, instead of trying to see without judgment, I wish they had said, try to see your judgment without judgment. Wouldn't that have been nicer? Because of course it's there. I mean, come on, don't immediately start with, oh, it's there. Well, you're going to have to hire a professional to come in there and root that out. No, I mean, come on. Of course, judging functioning is happening. There's an ego present. There's a body present. Of course, there's judging functioning happening. Just notice it. Oh, there you are. You're the one who does this. Yes, I understand it. Do you feel it? Because what's being cultivated there then is relationship with ego. Relationship with you're noticing I'm saying? Instead of judgment of which is ego. Ooh, pretty hard to get a witness going when the witness is that which is witnessed. In other words, when ego judges ego, it's just ego judging ego. So the part of you that really wants a good sitting, that's your ego. The part of you that was cranky with your bad sitting, that's your ego. Oh, good, 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 good. Please be in relationship with that part. It's not an enemy. But there's only one part of you that wants the good and not the bad, and it's your ego. Of course. It's doing its job. Well done. Please don't judge it for doing that. That's its function. That's its function. But isn't it cool to know, oh, there's more than just that? I am not that preference. That preference is just a function. Ooh, the world just got a lot bigger. Didn't it get a lot bigger? It got bigger for me when I heard him say, waves are the practices. That's what that is. So I got to get going here. We understand what those words mean, mindfulness, non-judgmental awareness, but we haven't actually experienced that state too much. Most of us don't. That's why we need to practice. That's why we set aside special time in a special space to take a special posture and give a special name to practicing this special kind of awareness. So that's our special. Yeah. We stick with this day after day. We start to discover what all meditators discover. That if we stop poking and prodding and forcing our experience all the time, something happens all by itself. Our observed experience starts to expand and deepen and show itself to us. Our experience starts to trust that we are curious about it, that we care about it, and that we're not here to judge it or change it or punish it. And so it begins to allow itself to be known. 
I hope that makes intuitive sense to you. If I'm looking for something holding a weapon, it won't want to show itself to me. That makes sense to me. That took me a very, very long time to see. That most of my looking was looking holding a stick. Are you sad down there? What's going on? <laughs> no, 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 we're good down here. We're good. Everything's good. We're good. Everything's good. Super chill, man. Yeah, Dharma, baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, emptiness, emptiness. What? No, I'm scared shitless. I'm a human being. I'm terrified. I'm sad. I'm heartbroken. I'm anxious. I'm freaked out. I'm confused. I'm in a mortal body that's actively dying. No, 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 fine. Can you feel it? And so all I'm sharing with you is the nature of the looker. That's me. Can you feel it? That's my ego going, hey, what's going on? That's the conditioned part of me I so want to get to see. That's the part of me that has already judged the emotional content that's there is not belonging. And so it's looking for it. We look for rats in your basement with a flashlight, right? If you're a rat, you've got pretty good incentive to not be seen by the flashlight because you know who's holding it. But I also know what it feels like when my name is called by somebody who loves me and they're seeking the tone of their voice, the way they say my name, makes me immediately go, me, here, 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 here. I'm down here, hon. What are you doing down there? Oh, I thought I'd go down here and rearrange the dead. And so when I am looking in here, hey, how are you doing? What, what's going on? Do you feel that that kind of inquiry is coming from a different place in you? So now we've taken the thing called mindfulness, non-judgmental awareness, which is correct, but we've dialed it up just a little bit because we've given, given it a little infusion. This is the infusion gesture of compassion. Our highest ideal in Mahayana Buddhism, all of Mahayana, all of Mahayana Buddhism, which includes Zen, our highest ideal, compassion. So you can feel now there's something even more intimate happening in the witness. I recognize you as me. And I care very much. And when I am listened to in that way, I am much more forthcoming. When somebody I am with who I know judges me, who I know does not have a vested interest in my relationship, who maybe I sense anger or criticism in says, how was your day? I say, fine. And when somebody that I know will go all the way with me says, how was your day? I can give, if I want, much bigger answer. But all those little micro moments where I felt inspired and hopeful, where I felt scared and discouraged, where I felt cold and lonely, where I felt super connected and alive, right? So the way that we look on the cushion, the way that we bear witness is of huge importance. These parts of us hide from us to the extent that we're dangerous. It makes sense, right? So we're practicing. That's why we call it practice, and that's why compassion is first and foremost on all of our altars. Right? It allows itself to be known. It starts to slow, and it begins to soften. Eventually, the slowing can become stopping, and the softening can become dissolving. And if that happens, we allow it. <clears throat> We sit here and we allow all of the waves 
to slow, to stop, and to eventually fall away. The activity of the mind and heart, the noise quieting, the tastes emptying, the visions fading. The lake of mind gives up its waves and just rests for a moment, reflecting everything exactly as it is. So just like waves, still reflection is also part of water nature, an expression of water nature. And stillness and reflection are also not a pathology or a problem. Just like waves, stillness is just water fully being water. So if you're like me, you see what I've just done. Oh, waves are the practice of the water, stillness is the practice of the water, I get it. But if you're like me, immediately you prefer the latter. You may have already noticed the preference arise. That's okay. Just be the one who notices that, right? Be the one who notices the preference, don't be the preference. Does that make sense? Yeah. Just because Zen literature spends so much time still, reflective, polish the mirror, be the Yeah, it's beautiful to remind ourselves that we have that quality. Yes, it's beautiful to know that that quality can not only be identified with, but can be cultivated. That's why we come here. That's why this building exists. But because it's emphasized so strongly, we become very, very quick to forget we don't have a judgment of the other ways that mind shows up, right? Open hand isn't more hand than closed hand. They're both just hand. It's okay. It's okay. All right. So I got to get, I got to get to wrapping up here. Um, later in the same book, Zen Mind Beginner's Mind, Suzuki says, calmness of mind does not mean you should stop your activity. Real calmness should be found in activity itself. We say it is easy to have calmness in, act, in inactivity. It is hard to have calmness in activity. But calmness in activity is true calmness. I love that passage. And he uses the word calmness so much that by the end, that's one of those things where the word stops meaning anything. You know, because you've just said it like eight mm -hmm. times in a row. What do you call that? Isn't there a word for that word? That... <laughs> I love what he's saying here because now he's insisting. He's inviting. <laughs> we collapse. You get that the waves are calmness of mind. It's not a problem. The waves are actually not less calm. A wavy lake isn't actually less calm than a still lake. That's you. Right, so calmness in activity is true calmness. Whoa. There's part of me that totally gets that. I believe there's part of you that totally gets that because I don't think those parts are different. That totally gets that. There's another part in me that goes, I do not understand what you're talking about. I think you're being weird. <laughs> and there's a part in you I know that says, I don't know what you're talking about. I think you're being weird. And I think we also have that in common. But let's just trust that, of course, we're talking about two different things and we're being invited to hold them at the same time. And that's hard to do. But we also have a little bit of us goes, yeah, that seems right. Which means we've experienced it. If you haven't had an experience of that, it wouldn't make any sense. If there's a little party that goes, yeah, that's actually right. Then you've had that experience. Sometime in your life, your body has been moving and you felt very, very still. Your thoughts have been racing and really, really busy. And you thought, no problems right now. Content, spacious, 
a-okay. I have felt calmness or peace in the middle of activity. You've had that experience? So you go, yeah, God, he's right. I know you've had the opposite. That's easier to see, where you've been really, really still in the middle of the zendo, and not only the candle flame was flickering and no one was coughing or sneezing, and your body was really, really still, and it was rough. Right? Because your mind was going a thousand miles a minute. So you've all experienced activity in the middle of calmness. But I completely assert you've had the opposite. Of course you have. That's a cool thing to notice, isn't it? If I recognize something, if some part of me goes, yeah, I think that's probably right, then I must have experienced it at some point. Or else I'd reject it as absurd. So, 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 so. I'm going to wrap up with this. The watcher, the observer, that field of awareness that we call the lake or the sky in Buddhism, the uncarved block, original mind. Boy, we have a lot of words for it, don't we? We talk an awful lot. We're a tradition that talks so much about not talking, but anyway. <laughs> um, that quality of consciousness is you. It's your true self. That's the assertion of our of our tradition. Um, it has always been the kindness, the curiosity, the spaciousness, the stillness in the midst of the activity of the world is you. And when you become aware of that, now it's awake you. It doesn't become more you. You didn't just become it. It was always true, but you just became aware of it. Isn't that cool? It's a live you. Because now it's conscious, right? Oh, I see. It's a live you. Howard Thurman, the American theologian, and well, he's a bunch of things. Theologian's a little reductive, but you can Google Howard Thurman if you don't know who that is. Uh, he said, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go do it. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Oh, man. Waves of the practice of the water. Do you see that? That's exactly the same thing. I said really differently. And so ask yourself if you really believe him. I'll read it again. Don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go do it. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Ask yourself if you believe him. This is not a trick question. I'm not saying you should. I'm asking you if you do believe him. You might, you might not. Or maybe you don't. But ask yourself if you believe that. And if you do, if you've decided at least temporarily this morning you do believe him, then maybe ask yourself what Howard Thurman means by the word alive. What makes you come alive? That's a really important Zen question. This is not Zen language. What makes you come alive is going to be pretty interesting to sit with because you got to dig into that.
and go, does alive include suffering? Does alive only involve pleasure? Is alive preference? Is alive short-term or long-term? Does alive, does alive include the past and future? What makes you come alive? What does that even mean? There's a lot going on here. Waves are the practice of the water. Do you see how much we're asking to include? So when we actually become kindness, even for a few moments, whether that's on the cushion or off, we become what the world most needs. We become someone who is alive. We are someone who for those moments is awake and engaged, grounded in the truth of themselves. Someone who's grounded in the truth is non-reactive, non-acquisitive, simple, honest, and clear. Someone who is grounded in themselves is responsive and generous, easy to approach, has no ax to grind, has no personal agenda. You'll notice I'm describing mindfulness. Someone who's grounded in the truth of themselves is the perfect activist. I've also just described the perfect parent, the perfect mate, the perfect voter, perfect politician, perfect driver, sangha member, teacher, student. I've described the person we all want to be around. And when we become that person, then we are the giver, the receiver, and the gift. Part of what drives us to the cushion sometimes is I want to be witnessed by somebody who cares about me. And that's just me here. It meets a pretty deep human need. I want to be with the person who won't judge. Who doesn't have an agenda for me? Just wants to know. So I sit with myself. Do you feel I'm the one who's being offered? I'm the one who's receiving the offering? I'm the one who's making the offering. I'm the giver, I'm the receiver, I'm the gift. What a beautiful thing it is. All right. So we'll just keep on being watery waves together, I guess. Um, and that's as much as I need to say. And I appreciate your attention. But that's my time. So um, before we... Um, Turn it over to our dawn with announcements and that kind of stuff. Um, does anybody have some questions, insights? Steve. Okay, the eye of the storm is there for the storm to the act and storm. And so then, you know, as it is maybe a metaphor, not meteorology, that the the storm is passed by this calm stillness, which is the eye of the storm. Mm. So then you have a you have a calm stillness, looking for another storm or a greater storm, and that then we have another eye and we have another storm, and then there's a pacification. Um. And it seems like pacification is a good thing, not a bad thing. And so I guess I, I guess I'm trying to. So you have what like three states of Gaza. You have a Gaza laced with Hamas companies. You have a Gaza that is rubbled by 
you know, IDF. And then you have a Gaza, which is neither laced by Hamas tunnels or rubble by IDF. And I think we'd opt for the third Gaza. But then that Gaza becomes this place where all these bigger and other Gazas laced with Hamas tunnels and being rolled by IDF. So it, it seems to me that you have a, uh, this, you know, pacification as a verb is unpopular because it has, you know, colonialist mm. over time. But you have this thing that is a good thing, which is pacification. And that I think we can perhaps judge as ah, a good thing, pacification. Our, our stilling, it might be a uh, more neutral term. Mm. Stilling is a good thing. And that's enlivening. And, and so that's the, the productive, energetic uh, activity of Zazen. And so we can judge that. Mm. <clears throat> well, I only understood a little bit of that. I'll do my best. Uh, eye of the storm, as uh, the uh, the eye of the storm. What, what Steve was saying, just for those of you who are at home who might not have been able to pick that up on the mic, um, I'll give you the part I get. Um, the eye of the storm is pacification, and the activity of the storm around the rim is activity, right? And part of the function of zazen is to change activity into stillness to pacify, is that correct? And that we are we are correct in judging that as a positive thing. Did I get it? Yeah. I, Am I yeah. close? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. The way the metaphor is being used, the, the way I understand the way, the way the metaphor is being used today, Suzuki chose waves and water and not weather and storm, so I mixed my metaphors with the talk title. That's on me. Is that the eye is a function of the storm, and the storm is a function of the storm. They're both functions of the sky equally so. And that the eye of the storm is more storm or less storm than the activity of the storm. That's how I understand that. So the metaphor works. I mean, I understand the way you're taking it. And to me, the um, from a practice point of view, from a sitting on the cushion point of view, the reason this has value to me is because I do notice the agency and the power that comes from recognizing I have very afflictive states and I'm doing this gesture on my head, but I'm also meaning very afflictive mm -hmm. states and that the practice we have all been given has the potential of transforming those states and calming them. I think Steve's exactly correct. The reason the quote, the, the, the storm is a function of the sky, right? the, the um, waves are a function of the water. The reason that seems so important to me is because my starting point for that relationship, I am in relationship now with a storm. I'm in relationship now with Hamas. I'm in relationship now with the waves is to recognize that if I have, if I have the impulse of um, control or violence in me immediately in relation to that storm, that is what's going to carry it in other words, if I sit and my relationship with the activity is, I need to still you, that's the karma. Well, I don't even need to do air quotes. That's karma. 
That's the karma that carries forward. It makes sense. So today, for example, the sky is really clear here and really, really beautiful. And if my relationship with still sky is, that's correct sky. Then when clouds show up, can you feel it? So what I'm certainly not saying is that in actual lived experience, um, the churning mind and the active grief or the rage or whatever is an ethical equivalent of a very calm, no, 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 not at all. I completely agree with where you're going. But the initial starting point relationship for me has to be a yes. Oh, I see that this is the thing. Gotcha. That puts me in what I would describe using Buddhist terminology as right. I get that you are here. I get that you must be included. Peace isn't going to happen when you leave. Does that make sense? And this is pretty core Zen, right? That nirvana shows up in the midst of suffering, not when suffering is absent. This, the eye of the storm is kind of just a cool metaphor because it's like, oh, there's all this stuff. And you go, oh, no, that's all that's happening. But you, as a metaphor, you dig your way into the middle and go, oh, the middle is this quiet witness that just watches all of it. Right? It's apart from the storm, but it's also not. Um, I see a raised hand here in front of me. Is that something we do or no? Okay. Let's be achieved because she knows all things. Um, uh, oh, and now I don't see it anymore. Oh, no. It's, oh, it's Diana. It's Diana. Yeah. Oh, how are you? Good. Are you warm? Good to see you. Yes, I am. Very toasty. Thank you. Uh, um, <laughs> she's learning. I... <laughs> Go ahead, man. Good to see you. I wanted to thank you for your talk um, because I think that in many moments we judge ourselves so harshly, but with what you said, what I understood is like, you know, see yourself as a shallot, a very expensive type of onion because you are very precious, right? And uncover it with the dignity and love and tenderness that that should come with all of the years that it's taken for you to be you, right? If it's 40 or 20, kind of, you know, don't rush into it but also give yourself time to develop that tenderness. And I, I really thank you for that because it, it really hit home. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad, Diana. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I can only speak for, my, for myself, but um, as simple as the be tender and kind teaching is, um, for me, that's decades. Just decades and decades and decades and decades. I think just because the the opposite um, judgment and right assertiveness and aggressiveness was was practiced unconsciously for so many years. It took a long, long, long. It is taking a long, long, long time to just go. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. All of us got the full dharma by the time we were three. All of us did. Be nice. There, that's it. That's it. You're done. All those books you read. I mean, keep reading them if you want. But it's the same thing. Just be kind. I mean, then you have to figure out what B is. And you got to figure out what kind is. But it's not like there's a dharma beyond those words. Be kind. 
remember that you are kindness. What else is there? I would I would be very suspect of Dharma that was more complicated than that. No, you gotta understand the threefold nature of all. <laughs> In a hundred years we're fodder, all of us, we're dead. Going, going, gone. I don't need to understand the eightfold blah, 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 and the 15, 16 datus and the 50 blah, only to the extent that those are helpful to me to be kind. Just be kind. There you go. Isn't that nice? Because you've all been kind. So you just forget that you're that. So yes, Diana. And you used a food metaphor because you know I'm hungry, didn't you? <laughs> the whole shout thing. Yeah, see, look at her nodding. Unbelievable. <laughs> Classic Diana. <laughs> Please, Phil. Sorry, one more. Um, uh, so a, a pattern that it seems is really common uh, with with humanity and societies and all sort you know any kind of group that you can put a label on. Um, there's a pattern of equating the observation of the thing with the condoning of the thing. So if I say that that's there, or if I say that that's what I'm seeing, well then that must be true. And if that thing is judged to be something awful or terrible well we like you said we have to eradicate it it's got to go away and I, I feel like that's a gap or maybe a skill that is weak that's something that we're weak on as, as as human beings is that just can you talk a little bit about how when we what's the relationship between observing something that we don't like in ourselves or a behavior that we see or a terrible event and What's the relationship between observing it and condoning it? Yeah. Does that make sense to folks? Did everybody hear that? Um, what's the difference between observing something, just being aware of it, and then like endorsing or condoning? Is that right? Yeah. Hmm. It's funny because um, that's a great question. Thank you. Because they really are different, aren't they? Those are wildly different things. But they aren't until we see it. And I do think it's it's completely apropos to this conversation because when we're new to uh, practice, when we're new to sitting, new to meditation, new to mindfulness, this idea of observing without judgment is really alien to us. We literally do not know that that's a possibility, which makes sense because we've never been taught to do that, right? Which is also weird because, like, that's the actual nature of consciousness. We had to be taught to do the opposite, but we're so identified with the opposite by the time we become self-aware that we forgot we could do the first thing. Did that make sense? Okay, cool. I wasn't sure that was that sentence was going to make it. Anyway, yeah. Oh, I get it. To see something is to immediately uh, objectify it. To see it is to immediately label it, and then to see it is to immediately assign it a value. Right. This also shows up in the Skanda model for those of you who are Zen nerds and we want to get into this sort of thing. It's just how the objectification, how the objectification of experience becomes something that is objectified and therefore separate and therefore judged and therefore there's an impulse and all this other kind of stuff. Um, but what I love about what you're asking is we are so used to immediately viewing something as an object that has a value and then treating it in relation to our value that we forget we Again, we forget that we don't. So one of the things that we first start to see, and when I say first, again, for me, this was years. Maybe I was just slow, you guys. I don't know. Maybe all this shows up for you quicker than it does for me. But it took me a long time to realize that every time I had a momentary apprehension, I see the thing, the person, that there's immediately a judgment. Positive, negative, neutral. 
is what the Buddha said. You immediately go, you like it and you want more. You don't like it and you want less or, yeah. Right? The person's face, the food, the song, the sensation in your foot, doesn't matter what it is. You mean like, ooh, like it. I want more. Ugh, I want less. Or, eh. right? And of course, because we're such good filters, homo sapiens, you know, 95% of whatever is just, eh, I'm just, I'm just like, right? As I'm talking to Phil, I'm not aware of the color of the wall and I don't have an opinion about the color of the wall. I'm concentrating. But everything we're talking about here is how ego, again, how human ego consciousness works. And so we're always seeing things through that lens. I like it. I don't like it. I don't care. I like it. I don't like it. I don't care. I want more. I want less. I don't care. And so then all of a sudden to see something and just to see it and to not do anything is kind of condoning. Like, wow, boy, that guy's hitting that other guy pretty hard. Wow, look at that. Well, gotta go. <laughs> I've just described seeing and witnessing and choosing not to do something which feels like endorsing or condoning. I mean, I really, really get it. So... I don't know how to answer this question other than experientially. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to answer this question just from my own point of view instead of trying to offer some great universal thing here. For me, one of the most um, challenging functions of Zazen is it makes me aware of things I didn't know before. And I do, I do see things that I didn't see before. And once I see them, I can't pretend like I didn't. And now I'm aware that I did something or I didn't do something. Now I'm aware that I was scared or that I was angry or that I was avoiding it. I didn't know I was really avoidant. Now I do. Ooh. Right? I mean, that's a really important thing for me to see. But it also puts the responsibility of action or non-action on me because now I see it and I can't pretend like I don't. So I do think sometimes just bearing witness is condoning. And sometimes bearing witness is the opposite of condoning. But I've decided that the most skillful, loving, wholehearted thing I can possibly do is to bear witness and not blink. And the bearing witness idea, that's a whole other talk. You can all Google the Zen Peacemaker's Order. It is one of their three tenets to bear witness. And that's never confused with condoning. Quite the opposite. We're going to bear witness and we're going to choose a place to go, like a nuclear power plant or Auschwitz or something like that, right? Because we want to bring awareness to a thing that we normally refuse to become aware of. Right? So what am I condoning? I'm condoning awareness. I'm condoning one awake heart in the midst of this, one still person in the midst of this. That storm is going to have at least one eye. Somebody who saw it. This is the story of the Buddha sitting down under the tree as he was watching the war. And the tree didn't have any leaves. Again, Google this, you guys. <laughs> sitting under the tree with no shade. Why are you sitting under the tree? Because this is on my homeland. And his, his home was being invaded by another. I think there was a war, blah, 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 blah. And he bore witness to it. And there's, what do we do? It's Buddhists. Does that mean he's condoning war because he didn't stand up and run in there? Does that mean his peaceful presence was supposed to stop it and he failed? Does that mean that his peace offering was just to bear witness? I don't know the answer to those questions. All of the above, whatever story you want to tell. But I do believe as you do this practice, and this goes for everybody here today, 100% you will feel the difference between bearing witness to something with a cracked open heart 
and condoning. 100%. And of course, I know that you know. It's just, it's, it's difficult to put words around it. My sense is that you already know that those are two different things and that it's hard to put words around. And so asking this question is a good one because we can ask this question of anybody who sits in this seat and go, how do you put words to that? Because we all know those are different things. But how do you describe it? Because that'll help me understand it a little better. Does that feel fair, Phil? Yeah, thank you. Okay, folks, that's enough chattering out of me. Um, I want to turn this over to our Dewan. Thank you all. I appreciate your attention today. Okay.